All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is a place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We're back with another panel episode. For those of you who have cons that were canceled or just bored and need something to listen to, we uh, recorded three of these episodes. This is the last one, but this one's going to be a slightly different take on military science fiction because all of our guests today are from the uh, tiny little island known as the United Kingdom. Uh, and they're, they're um, something I learned working with Tim is science fiction that comes out of the... Um, uh, the island is slightly different than ours. Their sensibility, ours being American, their sensibilities are a little bit different, and it affects sometimes mm. the stories they tell. So I thought it would be an interesting uh, opportunity to have some of them come on and talk about things from their perspective. So uh, today we've gathered some authors from the vast array of the awesome British modern military science yeah. fiction greatness. And we're going to host that Ooh, panel. Yeah. So in alpha, in alphabetical order, but not in order of importance to our hearts. Uh, we're going to let the guests tell us who they are and what they write. And if they have any military experience, they can throw that in as well. So we'll start with you, Ralph. Hey, well, I know you said not in order of imp um, importance, but I'd consider myself the least and the first amongst this uh, great, uh, great crowd you've got here. But um, firstly, uh, JR, thank you very much for uh, having me. Um, so my name's uh, Ralph Kern. Um, I'm a, oh, I've been writing for around, um, around, uh, uh, six years, uh, four months, 21 days or, or thereabouts, uh, probably about three hours as well. Uh, I remember that because I, uh, I, I started writing on New Year's Day after a particularly heavy night on the lash. Uh, decided to uh, decided to put together a bucket list and one of those things was um, to write a book. So, um, so that's where my, my writing voyage started. Um, I written to this date um seven books have been published with an eighth coming out on the um on the 7th of june um they're split between three series um, the first series is um called the sleeping gods is uh, what i'd call a hard science fiction exploration of the solar system uh, the galaxy the universe a little bit of sort of a um exploration of um you know how humanity will evolve and look um my next series was called the locust trilogy it's a little bit different it's sort of set in contemporary times it's more of a kind of mystery um i kind of describe it as a little bit of a love child of uh, lost uh, the last ship and battlestar galactica 
so it's kind of set in our times, but uh, there's definitely science fiction underpinning the the mystery of what goes on. And I would describe it as military uh, military science fiction as well, as there is a massive uh, military component to it. Um, and then finally, my most recent series, and the one which um, I would suggest um, prompted you to uh, invite me onto your show, um, is called The Great War. Um, this is a far, far future kind of thing, um, which when I kind of first came up with the concept, I, I sort of, the, the overriding elevator pitch was World War II in space. So it takes the um, events, battles, um, politics of the Second World War, uh, and it puts it into a military science fiction um, setting, i.e. instead of um, Navy wet water warships, there's starships um, instead of um, sort of regular aircraft fighters and bombers and whatnot there's star fighters star bombers um and uh, instead of tanks mechs that kind of thing um so yeah there's a series of books where i particularly take um a section of related events and then sort of write a book around them so the first one being dunkirk second one being the hunt for the bismarck so on and so forth um so a little bit about me um i'm in real life i'm a police officer um, I've got responsibility for managing the um, uh, one of the cities here, uh, or one of the city centre here uh, in sunny Birmingham. Um, in terms of military experience, um, whilst I was at university, I was in the Army Reserve. Um, and then I transferred through uh, to um, what we call our Air Cadets, which is as uh, which is an organisation which sort of is based around the Royal Air Force. Uh, in supporting children who've got an interest in that. So, say, children 13 to 18. Um, my job with them was as what's called a civilian instructor, taking uh, kids flying in motor gliders. Uh, so giving them experience in flying aircraft or, or being in an aircraft that's being flown, I should say, uh, which was one of the best weekend jobs I could possibly think of. It was great. Um and then, uh, and then from there, uh, I um, I joined what's called what we call the MOD Police, Ministry of Defence Police, um, which is um, sort of a hybrid between a military uh, or a conventional military service and a police service, sort of like fits the middle ground. I, I'm not sure if you've got an analogy over in the US. Um, I'd have to do some more homework on that, but um, it kind of it gives sort of an element of the. Um, it's the scenarios where um, you, you need the ability to respond with um, sort of a paramilitary force, but possibly in a uh, civilian setting. Um, that's probably a very, very loose example um, uh, uh, explanation, but uh, I won't dwell on it anymore before uh, before going on to um, before going on to join the more regular police. So that is me in a nutshell. So I'm going to be honest with you. We actually just invited you because you guys have cool accents <laughs> and you use words we've never heard of before. Well, if you don't understand what the hell I'm on about, just give us a uh, give us a nudge and I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll uh, re-explain in, in your uh, in your corrupted version of our language. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, all right. So next we have Miss Hi, sci-fi shenanigans. Well, uh, I write under the name Ashley R. Pollard. Um, I'm a retired cognitive behavioral therapist, which you don't have in America because, well, 
or Americans. Um, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a psychologist, but it's a very practical, um, behavioral-based psychologist. And I've had a long, lifelong passion for science fiction and tabletop gaming. Um, so my career started back as a freelancer for Faza Corporation for Battletech. And uh, I worked on the technical readout 3055, um, which then meant they had to rewrite the rules because I made my battle mech designs too good for their game. But we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> I've also been a columnist and reviewer for Battle Games and Miniature War Games magazines and Games Master International. Uh, only two of those, no, only one of those is still going because uh, war game magazines tend to uh, come and go. I have uh, been writing now for about eight years, uh, you know, in fiction. Uh, I have two series that you can actually go to and buy. The first is my Gatewalker universe. Um, and the pitch line for that is um, Armored Trooper Votoms meets Stargate. But since most people don't know what Armored Trooper Votoms is, if I just say Starship Troopers, Power Armor in space, well, not in space, but through the Stargate, you, you kind of get the impression. There's three books in that. Uh, my second series is called The World of Dre. Uh, it's uh, near future. I haven't got a date for it, but it's kind of near future. Uh, Russian Civil War, where the Russians are dealing with European cyber tanks, German cyber tanks. Um, well, sort of German cyber tanks. It's an alliance of Poland and Hungary and uh, the Visegrad group and the Baltic Alliance. And in the editing process, you know, it's ongoing creative arena. I've got a Cthulhu novel, which I have to go back and fix a plot point to. And I'm currently working on the next book of the Gatewalker series, which is a side story featuring one of the characters from the first three books who is a side character, giving him his own novel. And he's a spook and... Uh, they're going back to this planet to meet aliens and go boldly when nobody's gone before. Is that is that covered base? I think that's probably covered the bases. Absolutely. And uh, last but not least, we have Mr. Tim C. Taylor. Hi. Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess uh, first up, uh, I should say, having read the uh, Gatewalker uh, books and um, Great War, I'm a, I'm a fan of... Ashley R. Pollard and of Ralph Kern. So that's uh, one of the reasons I'm particularly excited to be here today. Uh, I write as Tim C. Taylor. Um, the C is only there in my professional life. Uh, I think I started writing, it's something to do with beer. I can't remember exactly why, but it was 2001. Uh, I went full-time 2011. Um, I mostly write space opera and military science fiction. Uh, the Human Legion series is probably my most... Uh, read um but at the moment i'm writing a, a series of novels in the four horsemen universe which is a mechs and mercenaries um a series uh, in chris kennedy publishing that's co-designed by uh, mark wandry and chris kennedy and in fact uh in perhaps a day or so i'm going to start co-writing a novel with 
my publisher, Chris Kennedy, which is something that's a little bit scary, but I, I hear something that you might have done something similar to that, uh, JR, at some point. Yeah, co-writing can be a um, unique yeah. endeavor. Or, um, or, or, so luckily, luckily I had some yeah. good bosses. <laughs> cool. All right, so now we will define our term. So what is military science fiction? And throw in as much of what makes it diff- uh, different uh, in the UK compared to America when you answer this as you want. And uh, throughout this episode, uh, pepper in anything that makes you guys unique and special. So uh, we're going to do this one not in alphabetical order because I don't want the same people to get to go first all the time. Otherwise, the person at the end just goes, uh, what Bob said. Uh, we learned that already. So uh, we'll, we'll go with Ms. Ashley. What uh, What is military science fiction? It's, I'm going to be very contrary now and, and say that uh, in my experience, defining a genre um, comes up what I call edge rules in gaming. It's when you run your, your, your tank down the side of the board knowing that the people can't swing round and attack you from the side because they'd be going off the board. And so, you know, I, I have a slight problem that every time I enter a discussion about what science fiction, um, it comes... You know, people go, well, it's this, it's that. I kind of know what it is when I see it. But I think the more that you, you nail down the definitions, the uh, the more subdivided it becomes. So um, for me, I think the prime thing is it's a military setting. Uh, so a chain of command and characters who act like soldiers, marines, sailors and pilots. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have a story with uh, hot doggers, you know, Maverick in Top Gun and stuff, but the setting for me has to be really convincing. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Tim, you're next. Yeah, and I, I'm with Ashley. I, I don't like to narrow it down too much, and I know, I know it when I see it. But the the thing that defines military science fiction is is military. We there's some kind of organised um, force that we would recognize as being a military today and to make it military science fiction it could be lots of other things as well but if you took the military aspect out of the story it it just wouldn't work anymore it wouldn't make sense all right and um last but not least we have mr ralph kern yeah well uh we're facing probably the problem you identified is uh, i do agree with absolutely with both what ashley and tim have said um for me military science fiction well let's pass it down a little bit you've got science fiction um, which generally, although not always, is it takes place in space, uh, albeit it can take place in, um, uh, in, in on sort of a primarily an Earth-based setting, even uh, whether in the future, um, in uh, contemporary times, or even the past. Um, generally, with the uh, trappings of what makes science fiction, science fiction is um, some kind of um, uh, science-based. Um, um, problem or uh, solution to that problem. Um, now, to add um, the, uh, the the bolt-on of military, um, part of the solution to the problem or part of the setting is going to be a military aspect to it, um, to which um, I think then, much like regular science fiction and the def- definition of hard science fiction or not, um, to call something military science fiction, it's got to, or in my mind, I should say, it has to have the authentic feel of involving a military organisation, um, either as protagonist, antagonist, or, or, or the framework of which that story operates. 
um, and um, it can be either relatively soft, um, uh, you, you know, with, um, I would argue, something probably like, um, in my view, probably Star Trek or something like that, where, you know, it, it sort of underpins things, but, you know, it doesn't really make sense when you, when it bears close examination, i.e. why does a captain go on an away mission and all that kind of stuff, all the way up to sort of quite hard science fiction, um, where you probably base it on um, sort of an existing military structure. Now, in my view, it's often not sort of as, uh, or certainly future science fiction, it's not necessarily bounded by what we think is realistic. So, for example, if I thought of um, um, sort of a lot of the kind of uh, really excellent military science fiction I enjoy, uh, you know, quite often that involves sort of uh, guys jumping into fighters and warping across star systems. And it's like, well, you know, it, it, it makes for an entertaining read, but it's not necessarily um, how I envisage what real future war would look like. But albeit, one of the most important things is a consistent framework and an authentic feeling framework, and especially around the culture that's involved. Okay, and that's my answer. <laughs> All right, and it is a good answer. So now I went over to the fine folks at Wikipedia University because we know they are never wrong. <laughs> uh, and here's what they had to say. So military science fiction is a subgenre of science fiction that features the use of science fiction technology, mainly weapons, for military purposes, and usually principal characters that are members of a military organization involved in military activity, usually during a war, so they could use a copy editor, uh, occurring sometimes in outer space or on different planets or planets. It exists in literature, comics, film, and video games. Um, and so it goes on to basically repeat that same sentiment multiple times in multiple paragraphs. So I will spare you, dear listener, since you've listened to it twice before, but uh, given the definition from the fine folks at the Wiki University. Uh, do you need to change your answer, Tim? No, I'd go along with with that. Um, I've seen the rest of the, the definition, but it goes under too many specific things. But I think if you keep it, it's to do with military. I think that's that's fine. I wouldn't say, for example, that it needs to be refighting historical things in space. Well, that's exactly what Ralph's doing, a great effect, but I think that's quite... Hey, a, hey! That, <laughs> doesn't have to most things don't do that i think they they borrow from what's happened and they and i think the idea that you said ralph of it has to have an authentic culture to be um to work really well i think that's an important point but i think that's probably anticipating a question about what makes good military science fiction but yeah i'm happy with my earlier answer all right yeah, ralph um I'd, I'd agree with tim i'll put more of a focus in that definition on um, the military culture uh, and making that culture feel authentic. There is no difference in my mind that there's a different mindset within um, the military um, than there is perhaps is with civilian uh, life. So um, I would probably put a more, um, the culture would be an important addition to that definition, but generally I'd agree with it, uh, with the sole exception um, that, I don't believe it necessarily requires um, sort of the, the futuristic technology that it, it seems to allude to, science, so uh, that features the use of science fiction technology, mainly weapons. I think you can do a damn good um, military science fiction set in our times um, with contemporary equipment, weapons, training, etc. 
um, where, as I said to you in my my put together definition, the, the the problem itself might be a science fiction problem. Um, I don't know, stopping a uh, stopping an asteroid from hitting the uh, hitting the Earth or whatever. You know, you'd still use sort of what we would recognise as conventional technology, but it might be military personnel who do it. All right, and after- well, I'm going to stick with my answer uh, because. Whilst I think the wiki uh, definition is, is reasonable, uh, the problem I have, as I said before, is defining things with lists of tick boxes. You end up forgetting the most important thing about stories, which is a character in a setting with a problem. So, you know, military setting, military characters, chain of command. These are what make military SF, in my humble opinion. <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of the uh, the characters and the vibes, do you guys feel that uh, the sentiment, um, science fiction, military science fiction written by uh, and for British audiences is different than, say, what we would see with America? Because um, every military has its own sort of culture. Do you feel like yours is different or is that universal? Uh, and we'll start with Ralph this time. Um, I think the gap is closing. Um the US and the UK have been allies, very close allies, and dare I say it, very close friends since, um, well, for, you know, for over a century. Now, a um, hundred years or so or more, um, especially around the uh, age of about World War One, um, the UK military and the American military were essentially geared to, to be able to face off against each other. Uh, which is seems absolutely bizarre now, but that was sort of like a hangover from what happened in the 18th and 19th century. Whereas now, um, uh, now we've kind of, um, I think the gap has closed somewhat. We speak the same speak, um, you know, in terms of like NATO radio comms, that, that sort of thing. That being said, our military force is undeniably many, many times smaller than yours and um and undoubtedly far less capable however what we do do well we pride ourselves on doing very very well um so our our special forces for example our our sas you know it's fair to say they're legendary throughout the world um, uh, and um our um our, our conventional um or more conventional military i should say um have a very good reputation uh, amongst um, uh, amongst other nations, or, or, or so we like to think, um, as professional soldiers, very elite, very um, uh, you know, keep cool in, in in fire. But we've also got a massive and long history as well, um, which has again stemmed from the 19th and 18th centuries when this small island we're on had an empire that spanned the world uh, and. From our tiny little island, we, we were an absolute pivot for world events. And we, again, the, there's a hang, hangover of us taking a massive amount of pride in that, um, that uh, that we still keep keep to this day. Um, so what, what are the kind of differences that probably still exist? Um, I... I th- Again, a lot of our mili- a lot of our um, sort of individual mission functions, I should say, are plug and play. Um, the, probably the primary difference is whilst we keep a um, 
um, a substantial ability to project a, um, an expeditionary force. I, I think our days of being able to um, win a war sort of in, a, in isolation, we'll probably need more to view it in a collaborative function, whereas America sh- definitely retains the ability, um, maybe not the will, but the ability to be able to um, project a significant amount of force on its own and unilaterally, should it show so wish to. Um, it's just through sheer diplomacy that you, you you feel that the best way is to do that through partnership. Uh, whereas if we were to um, if we were to be um, desiring to take the battle to uh, enemy waters or, or, or land, we would probably have to um, start utilising our negotiation skills to try and um, bring in other partners to to support us with that. Um, I'd say there's probably a hell of a lot of other specifics as well that are, are different of our our different um, weapon systems and uh, whatnot. But again, you know, there's only so many ways you can skin a cat when it comes to um, sort of infantry tactics and weapons. And because we've been working so closely over the, the last um, the last well, best part of a hundred years, um, you know, our, our tactics and skills and drills would be recognisable to yourselves. It would just be the specifics that would might. Uh, might cause some questions or confusion. So uh, don't don't sell your tiny little island short because if you just resurrect the corpse of um, uh, Churchill and he give a rousing speech, you guys would be all over it. You'd be conquering the moon already. <laughs> he, he had a way with words. But yeah. uh, <laughs> Ashley, do you believe that uh, the culture in the the British military is significantly different enough that it affects the type of stories that that, uh, you guys produce? Well, that's really two questions. Um, Culture difference definitely exists. Whether it affects the stories, that's kind of more arguable. Um, From my perspective, I'm very much an Americanophile. Um, Rah, 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 America. If I could be an American citizen, I would choose to be an American citizen. So, you know, I'm slightly biased and I kind of think the American military is, is just, well, the best military in the world. Caveats. Um, don't don't uh, count the British out. I mean, when we um, took back the Falklands back in the 80s, um, the Russians had to reassess uh, Britain's military capacity and uh, that we went from being kind of somewhere near the bottom, you know, down with the French, perhaps, to actually, um, uh, you know, the outrages and went, wow, who would have thought a small country like Britain could extend military force 12,500 miles away to a godforsaken island in the South Atlantic? And not only that, uh, we did some really quite incredible things there. Um, normally, you expect in battle... Um, to outnumber your opponent about four to one. Um, We retook the islands outnumbered by four to one. And we uh, inflicted four times as many casualties, approximately, on the Argentinians as the Argentinians did on us. So, yeah, I do think there's a a big cultural difference, um, but it's not in those things about weapons and tactics, because I think, you know, Ralph has said, you know, we're we're very comparable. We can slot into an American 
uh, table of organization and equipment to supply this bit of the force. Um, but there is something about the British character. Um, one of the things I noticed on this podcast is you, you called me Miss Ashley, you know, and in, in, in England, we would just dispense with all that um, uh, formalities. Whereas I noticed with my American friends, there's a lot more of that formalities like, you know, uh, thank you, sir, and stuff. So I think there are differences. Whether that actually adds up to anything is another matter. Okay. I think some of that, those differences that you mentioned with the, the perception of what is polite, et cetera, is, is also regional in the U.S. So um, what about you, Tim? You got anything to add? you think the uh, British military culture is significantly different enough that it affects the stories? Because I do know you produced a certain book about UK military science yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. So I'm today. pretty interested in the other uh, people's uh, answers here because I – I put uh, helped to put together a an anthology, uh, Empire at War: British Military Science Fiction in 2015-16, and I wrote an article on what makes British military science fiction distinctive. Uh, and I, I think I fell in the trap of uh, projecting myself onto my answer and just feeling I had to reach out and draw an answer. And I've been looking at it ever since, and I don't really believe my own answer, which is interesting because it does match a lot of what Ralph said. Uh, which is the idea that uh, a, a clear thing that I can point to, the difference between British attitude and American attitude is uh, Britons don't feel they have the, the weight in the world to project force and make things happen except in alliance. Therefore, I, I suggested uh, British authors would have um, more alliances to defeat the, the, the bad people. <laughs> But having written that in that article, I don't see that at all. I see it in my own writing a little bit, but I think that's just projecting myself. There's got to be cultural differences in there. It has to be. But uh, I'm not sure I can really distinguish what they are. And when I look at myself, I mean, I've uh, written or published about 30 military science fiction novels so far, and I really don't see much of a sales difference averaged out across Britain and the UK relative to the size of, of the market. In other words, it's not as if um, American military science fiction is more, or military science fiction is more popular in America than it is over here. So uh, it's interesting. There's got to be differences in there, but I'm not entirely clear enough to me what, what they are. But I, I, I think even if I'm unconscious of them, I think there will be differences. And I think that adds to the whole variety, which has got to be a good thing. Can I come in and just say something? Okay, well. Sure. One of the things I noticed, um, going what Tim has just said and what Ralph has said, is that there's a certain uh, tone that British uh, squaddies refer to their officers as Ruperts, which you wouldn't get in America. And I'm just going to leave it at that, but there is definitely a tone, cultural tone difference. Yeah. And, and if I may, sort of, if, I, if, if we're adding one more thing, um, one of the things I've noticed with um, the Great War series is um, whilst the, the story arc itself is going to be encompassing the whole of the Second World War, um, the first three books are, um, are, are, are Europe-centric. Um, obviously, the US only got uh, involved a little bit later um, following um, the date of infamy. Um, 
albeit obviously provided mil, uh, material support um, and uh, diplomatic support before then. Um, but I, I, I've got a lot of reviews and a lot of Cohen people who are emailing me about the um, um, the Great War series, and uh, um, there's several sort of uh, several veterans who who've served for a long time, uh, including um, flatteringly one one colonel who served in the um, in uh, Vietnam um, through to uh, through to a few, a few years ago, um, and. He was saying, I, you know, didn't have any knowledge whatsoever about Dunkirk until the movie came out and I, I was reading your book, which was which was really interesting to me because it's one of the defining events of the Second World War for us. And it helped define what um, um, how, how we viewed ourselves in the Second World War. And, and there's no doubt it kind of put us a, on the back foot for uh, for some time or. Um, or our, our, uh, our arrogance, if you like, about um, uh, being the dominant force in in Europe was uh, given a uh, given a good knock. Um, but it, but what's clear is what are major events to yourselves, and what are major events to us are different. So our our historical perspective of the world is somewhat different as well. Uh, and there was another review which basically said the Second World War didn't start until. Pearl Harbor, and I was like, no, that wasn't quite the case. <laughs> um, so again, it, it shows. Three guesses where that guy's Pardon? from. I said three yeah, guesses yeah. where that guy's from. Absolutely. So <laughs> it goes to show. So what? Even our perspective of history um, does depend on which, which side of the pond we are from, um, and it's not that they're wrong um, or we're wrong. It's just that um, that that is that is what helps define us. Uh, so it's just an additional thought um, that's uh, where, where we come from, where you come from, and so on and so forth. All right. <clears throat> One different I want to see if you can still agree on, because uh, when I deployed to Iraq the second time, we did work with some of the British territorials. And, and they I seem to remember it was 145 degrees uh, at noon. They stopped for hot tea when we were chugging whatever frozen beverage we could find. So do you think future British milita space militaries are going to still drink tea? Uh, we'll start with you, uh, Just say, Ashley. Ashley, drop the mist, please. It feels far too formal. Um, <laughs> okay. Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a question I didn't expect. Um, oh, yes, yes, we'll still drink tea and we'll have our little pinky fingers out whilst we do it. And we'll have the appropriate biscuits <laughs> that you can dunk that don't break and fall into your cup of tea. Because that wouldn't be pretty. Okay. Outstanding. What, what do you think, Tim? Still, still going to drink Gosh. space tea? <laughs> not, not even to say, are you going to be the uh, the odd guy out, Ralph? You think, you think the British uh, future space navies are going to drink the well, tea? Well, only in terms of uh, between you, me, uh, Miss Ashley and Tim, I, I hate tea, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but again, it, it comes to uh, it comes to the culture. I, I think that um, between now and the day the sun goes dark, uh, you, you know, the uh, <laughs> a um, uh, sort of any any kind of um, um, British contingent in in any kind of ex so stellar or interstellar expedition will carry carry a box of Tetley with them uh, for for, uh, for for brewing up with 
So uh, I'm, I'm from uh, the south of the United States, which has our own somewhat unique culture. And we know the truth is the only way tea is supposed to be drank is iced and sweet. So basically brown sugar water. Yeah. And uh, in, in some cities in the south, they call that table wine. <laughs> so the the definition of um, for, for military sci-fi uh, included the backdrop of war, but do you think that you can have a military science fiction story without the war component, uh, Tim? Uh, yes, uh, most of them do, but it, it's not necessary. Uh, and in fact, um, my Human Legion series, um, the first three novels, there's a civil war that takes place. Uh, and it's all happening sort of off camera. They're the effects are being felt, but they're not actually directly involved, none of the characters. So you've got military operations, but they're uh, the people, they're, they're mutinying and they're um, stragglers sort of capturing bases and stuff. But it's not, although they're part of an organized military or they've come from it, they're not actually involved in the war. It's all off camera. And that was the first three books. And they, they sold well, I mean, over 100,000 copies, and they have no one's come back to me and said, you did it wrong, because there wasn't a war. Uh, although I must admit, I felt quite relieved when I got to the fourth book, and then I put a more conventional warfare from there on in. So, uh, no, I don't agree with that. All right. Um, again, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's not necessary. Um, it, it normally normally is part of it, but it's not strictly speaking necessary um for me as i say as i said in the initial definition it's more about the military culture um and framework that um that defines it as uh, military science fiction there is some excellent um um what i consider military science fiction that either don't feature war or, or war is very much a secondary part of it of the story um not least um and I suppose it depends how you read it, but the way I read, say, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, it was far less about the conflict than than the returning home um, and, uh, you know, how, how the world had moved on each time and uh, and it, the character, I forget his name, was trying to um, trying to readjust. Um, and walk back, I suppose a metaphor for... For, for what 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 um, you and your your colleagues might have faced, uh, Jr. Your colleagues and friends um, coming home each time and uh, having to readjust. Um, but there, are, trying to think of uh, some other ones as well. Um, I've struggled to uh, pluck them out of my uh, my dim and dusty memory banks. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's far more important that. Or it's far more important as to the definition of military science fiction around the culture than necessarily um, the war itself. Uh, again, I'll use the Star Trek analogy, um, which it sets place takes place in a military-ish setting, um, i.e. on a starship, which follows a Navy rank structure. But up until, uh, was it? Deep Space Nine, you know, they, they, they never went into an actual war. So there's literally decades of, uh, of history to that series before uh, before they even um, uh, get into a major, major conflict. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. You can have uh, military science fiction, which isn't uh, um, about the war directly. I mean... I recently read uh, Brad Torgenson's story, The Chaplain's War, 
where the war component is really, they're all in a prison, a war camp, and it's just about how they cope with that. And of course, there's also the other quite famous uh, story, Enemy Mine by Barry B. Longyear, which was made into a film, not a very good film, but a film which was all about uh, two two, uh, soldiers, pilots, star pilots, stranded on a planet, having to work together and building up the friendship, but it was definitely set against a, a background of war. And I'd also, as one final observation, say, well, in real life, uh, a lot of what the military does falls under operations other than war. So, yeah, but I'd add some caveats because that's the way I roll and say, well, you know, um, <laughs> how, how you sell it to the reader in terms of the spiel on the back to make sure that they're, they're not buying this thinking they're going to get something X and they get something Y, which is not to their taste. So, yeah, with caveats, that would be my answer. All right. So part of what defines the genre are the common tropes. So are there any tropes that you feel have to be in a story for it to be classified as military science fiction? Ralph? Um there are there are a platter, if you like, of tropes. And one of the things I, I, I've found with my own writing is that uh, when, when you first start out, someone, you know, you, you go to sort of like amateur writing groups and they say, avoid tropes, you know, make sure you steer clear of tropes. And then actually what what you learn as uh, as you start to sell books as people want the tropes, it's uh, I, I'll suggest that um, there's probably like a there's probably some kind of ratio. This isn't worked out scientifically, but for in order for someone to find the next book, they've got to know that the next book is 75% close to what they like and similar to other books they've read. And then maybe 25% of that book is adds a new take or a difference to it. Um, that being said, um, you know, there, there are, there are many tropes that, that one can take the, um, the uh, you know the inevitable uh, sort of conflict between uh, enlisted and uh, officers, the the conflict between um, the military and uh, the government uh, that, that sends them tends to be a big one. Um, not least, obviously, the the trope of um, uh, the uh, the protagonist relationship with the antagonists. Um, for for me, one of the ones I'm I'm, I'm going into in the Great War is that uh, for the average um, foot soldier or sailor or, or spacer in this case um, and so on um, actually there's probably a hell of a lot more similarities between the uh, um, between the lower ranked people of opposing sides than there is with the with their own with their own kind of organizations you know a, a, a soldier from one side is probably going to have more in common um, but that being said, they've still obviously got a job to do, and that job is to defeat their enemy. Um, so there's that kind of almost dichotomy of, um, you know, hey, wait a second, you know, if you'd met this guy or by a quirk of nature, this guy had been, um, you know, born in the same nation as you, probably be buddies because um, they have a similar value set. So that's one one trope that that um, is kind of, you know, can be like kind of quite troublesome to um, to, to explore. Uh, without sort of overly giving sympathy to uh, say like in especially in the great war case sort of like the nazis which are an utterly despicable organization yet uh, anyway i'm diving too much into that um yeah i think you need tropes um the obvious um 
what do you need to, in, in it to what tropes do you need to be classified as military science fiction I, I, you don't need any of them but i would suggest that um you have a look at sort of what tropes there are and think can can they be can i give them a new spin can i give them a new take or are they useful to further my um my story or my characters arcs okay and uh next All we right, have well Ashley. i'm gonna go with what but jim butcher said at a, a convention panel once tropes are the tools that writers use to build their stories so yeah you've got to have your tropes i think the um the problem that you find with uh fandom talking about tropes uh, being overused is what they're really saying is that this story didn't engage me as a reader um because there are no new tropes. There are no new stories. All we can bring is a new uh, treatment of the ideas to the reader. And, you know, and that for military science fiction means a military setting, which may or may not be a war. Um, characters may or may not be fighting other people. They might be fighting the environment, you know, um, you could write a story about rescuing a colony from um, aliens, for instance. Oh, they did that, didn't they, in the film? So that that's what I say. <laughs> All right. She has spoken. Tim, do you dare disagree <laughs> with her? <laughs> well, I hear something about the arrows. So uh, probably not. But uh, no, I, I think that's, that's the excellent thing. I hadn't heard that before. Jim Butcher, tropes are your toolkit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you don't need to use any of them, but you're probably wise to to employ some of them as part of your toolkit. Uh, but I would, I would say you need to use the tropes that make your story the best one it can. I mean, I know some people will, will pick things and try to, to write to market, and some people can do that very successfully. But for me, I have to be excited by the story. So I will use the tropes that uh, engage me. And sometimes I start using one, but then it doesn't really fit in the story. So I, I push it to the push it to the corner uh, and to the edge so you can't traverse your turret and, and, and get it in the way or whatever. Um, but, yeah, basically they, they're, they're part of the toolkit. So, but no, no one trope is necessary. All right. So the um, one of the obvious um, components of a military science fiction is the culture. So the future. Daddy, but Miss Crystal Button. Sorry, my son delivered coffee, so I couldn't exactly put it away. But um, so one of the things that. All right. Sorry about that interruption, people. But it's coffee, so so you have to put up with it. So one of the um, tropes of the or parts of a military science fiction book is the culture of the military. Uh, a lot of times, what you see in military science fiction is a Navy Marine Corps base. But do you think that that is necessary? And do you think any of that will change? What's your opinion on on how you set up your your space militaries? Uh, it used to be, like I said, it was the Space Navy, Space Marines, and that was the extent of it. Um, do you think that will continue? Uh, will future military, space military culture be based on the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, or even we have a new Space Force? So I imagine the rest of the world will eventually follow suit. Yeah. Uh, Miss uh, Ashley, oh, you need to go you. first. Um, 
that's a sarcasm, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, I think this is a, a, a very difficult question because we don't really have uh, a solid foundation to work from. And if you actually look at space combat and I was involved, or I still am involved in a, a, a group called Science Fiction Conflict Simulations, who talk and discuss the problems of space combat and how to model it in a war game or a board game, um, things, spaceships are not ships or submarines in space. They are their own thing. So I think culturally they will be their own thing. However, to address the, the question specifically, it's going to be a mix Parts of it are going to be Navy because Navy's quite good at doing long haul missions and the logistics that go with that. But some of the operational stuff is going to be much more Air Force because you're going to be launching um, patrols that go off and do stuff. Uh, and then you're going to need the, uh, the poor old grunts because you can't hold a planet with a spaceship. So... Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I pity we're not going to be around to see it all, but uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, to see what actually happens. So there. Okay, Tim. Yeah, it's difficult to say because it it all depends. So things like technological constraints, because we can't actually go and fight a war around Jupiter at the moment because we haven't got the technology to do it. So that will determine some aspects of how it works. But it does appear as if whatever it will be, the needs to be self-contained and making decisions and having all your, uh, a single command decision and combined forces in one place under a single unified command does seem to be a requisite, which does seem to be, as my understanding, similar to the, the concept of the US Marine Corps, which is probably why it often gets used as a, as a model. Uh, another thing about Marines actually is for most of their existence, they were primarily, uh, there to um, to board ships and to repel borders. I think you can go back as far as the Battle of Salamis, where you first see that, that I'm aware of. So uh, I think that may well be become something that isn't perhaps such a big deal today that will will become. Uh, but also, I think it will be partly dependent upon what uh, conflicts first uh, arrive, because I think uh, Mike's my understanding military organizations they tend to react to the last uh war they fought and and be good at fighting the last war so it depends what's 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 going to happen i don't know don't know okay ralph yeah i, I mean i i would agree that and say that i don't think we we really know yet until we know or the first conflict happens, and I think the first conflict will help design or lay the foundations which will then subsequently evolve through future conflicts. Instinctively, I think that probably something like the Navy uh, would provide the um, would, would provide a, uh, a suitable starting framework. However, that being said, I, th I think humanity's future exploration of the solar system, which I believe is inevitable, um, and the um, and sort of our interstellar exploration, uh, which is not necessarily inevitable, but um, uh, you, you know could happen. Um, they're going to provide different eras, and those eras are going to give a different look and feel to how the uh, 
and military work. So in the near future, I'd say if there's a conflict in space, then, you know, it'll probably be sort of your, your perhaps your new space force that would, would lead it. Is that going to be primarily, um, you know, sort of taking out enemy satellites and whatnot, the, the kind of the very near future thing? Or is it going to be, or looking into the future, is going to be like conflicts around the moon or, or, or however it may be? Um, which will probably still be controlled by by Earth as we expand out into the solar system and into the universe. Then that uh, that um, the command structure would have to be more independent. So um, whilst within the solar system, you could still say subject to its information control and uh, you know operational security in terms of communications. The the um, uh, you know your forces could still be controlled by earth but let's project far into the future where where sort of humanity is expanding out into the into the stars and where that might not be the case so your your units your your ship or, or whatever would have to be far more independent the 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 captains and whatnot given far more uh, autonomy and then we'd probably harken back and we would look back further rather than nearer to the days of sailing ships where you would have um uh, where you'd have crews that were going on journeys for many months outside of the uh, outside of any kind of recognised command structure, and you've obviously got the the, the 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 commander will have to keep things on on task and on mission, um, and you know who knows what sort of society or military culture that would um, that that would present. Um, I mean, back to what Tim says. One of the other functions of the Marines. Um, as well as boarding enemy ships, was keeping order on the ships as well. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, are you going to find that kind of situation, especially with independent commands, which are out there for months and years? Um, are, are, is, is discipline going to start becoming an issue? I'd hope not, because training and um, training and commitment would, would overrule that. But what if it didn't? Uh, so i think it's going to be very interesting instinctively i think the navy would provide a model um i, I agree with ashley that you know the sort of there's elements of the um of, of kind of an air force kind of uh, mission focus however the navy can do that effectively as well your navy has more fighters uh, and bombers than our royal air force so you can effectively do that um you've got um, the ability to launch or the navy the us navy has the ability to launch satellites in a limited capacity so you know it's a fairly it's fairly well independently set up as well as a good model um but i think a lot of it would be self-evolved um especially if we face some kind of conflict between uh when there's an established space force and uh, and now where perhaps it'll be sort of scientists and engineers who would lead the exploration ben bowman wrote a very good set of stories called the uh, the grand tour which had a had a war in the asteroid belt, and it wasn't soldiers and greens; it was sort of engineers and scientists who had to uh, sort of form together a military force. So, which might well create something entirely new and different than we could ever envisage. So, I, I think it's an open question. I haven't got an answer for you, and I don't think anyone can have an answer for you right now. But, uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at. So, we actually do have someone who had an answer. Uh, Tim has on his website 
uh, humanlegion.com an article about the uh, the use of the old British regimental system for, for unit autonomy uh, among the stars. And uh, speaking of their websites, all of that, as usual, dear listener, is in the show notes. And uh, if you like what they're saying, uh, their Amazon page, they have a little bell that says buy. You just go there and you click buy on everything they've ever written. They <laughs> yeah. really like that. That is how you show them you love them and that you like what yeah. they had to say. Um, but uh, speaking of the military, um, how important do you think it is for military science fiction to stay on point with military ranking tactics and, and technology? How far can you stray from today's established norms and still be read, excuse me, still meet rear expectations, Tim? Well, I like to make it clearly slightly different, at least slightly different. So people aren't expecting it to be the way that the US Army is or the US Marine Corps is, because otherwise the slightest deviation and uh, you may get criticism. I have to say that I've never had uh, anyone come up to me and say, you got this wrong. Well, actually they did, but that, that was in, in betas and alpha readings, but no no um, reviewer. Um, I, I did know um, a, an author, Philip Richards, who used to get driven a little bit mad i think because he wrote stories about the english dropship infantry and he wrote them while he was uh, a british army platoon sergeant in afghanistan uh, and uh, he was forever getting uh, told off because he got his terminology wrong by by americans so he used to get this thing at the front about uh, i'm i'm british and i'm it's british army uh, uh, terminology but i i'm surprised i've never had that because i obviously don't have the well i don't have the, the military background um but i guess as long as it's clearly not quite the same as any uh current based um real military then everybody knows oh, i've got to adjust it it's, it's slightly uh not what i'm expecting but as long as you're consistent within that and it all makes sense then i think you you're fine so is he the one who wrote he is yes theory? excellent so I've been on a letter writing campaign to the Queen. She's been ignoring me about uh, releasing him from his service, so he might continue writing that series. Uh, so if you know anybody that, that I not, might need to write, you let me know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What about you, Ralph? How how uh, far from established norms do you think we can stray and still be military science fiction uh, and meet reader expectations? Um, as as um, uh, as I said before, I think the consistency is is the issue probably more than sort of meeting the um, uh, what, what is current. Uh, so as, as long as you have sort of a consistent rank structure that, that feels authentic um, and, and is to a certain extent defined, because I think the people who read military science fiction are quite process-driven. They like sort of definitions. Uh, and part of the challenge for us authors is to do it without having lumps of exposition in there, if you follow my meaning. But... Um, but um, yeah, as long as it's consistent and authentic, then uh, I think that um, readers are, are quite forgiving of things like rank. Um, I mean, one of the challenges I faced in the Great War was so for the the um, the Kingdom Aerospace Forces, the Royal Air Force, uh, I decided to use Royal Air Force rankings rather than um, rather than sort of converting them to a more recognisable rank structure. So. Uh, without going into it in too much detail, the the rank structure of the RAF is is based roughly around the Navy. So you have like flight lieutenants, um, squadron leaders, wing commanders, group captains, rather than uh, rather than lieutenants, um, you know, majors, captains, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, and I was kind of I was really sort of wrestling with whether I should use that or just sort of 
convert it back to a more more conventional and recognizable rank structure that's used uh, elsewhere other than just with ourselves and the Indian Air Force as it happens. Um, and you know, I, I decided to keep with the um, the RAF rankings, and um, I, I've not received one single negative <laughs> review or comment about that. So, which goes to show that even when it's unfamiliar to a reader, i.e., an American reader or, or whatnot, then uh, uh, then they're still willing to go with it, and they're still willing to um, um, uh, view it as legitimate. Um, in, in relation to sort of the tactics and technolo technology, again, it has to be consistent uh, within the framework of the story. Um, some of the uh, best examples, for example, are Marco Kluse's uh, series, um, where he essentially defines the limitations of his units, as we should all do. But him being a German chap, it's all very efficiently done. And... Um, and you absolutely know what everything's capable of and how, how tactics arrive from the personnel they've got and the technology. And it kind of makes sense um, to me. So, um, so yeah, as long as these things are consistent within the framework of the technology base that you have, um, then the tactics will fall out of that and they'll make for sort of the interesting part of your problem solving in, in, your, uh, in your main story. And you've just uh, illustrated one of the differences for American ears is we say lieutenant and you say lieutenant. <laughs> That's right, yeah. We even, we, we even uh, some of the... sergeant differently depending on what regiment you go to. So some people it's uh, S-E-R-G-A-N-T and for other regiments it's Sarge, but it's S-A-R-G-A-N-T, uh, which is, uh, you know, again, <laughs> again, you're probably going to go into warily. Uh, so to speak, and, and uh, at some point explain that um, that that's a regimental difference uh, rather than uh, you, you than a rubbish proofreading. And some of that has creeped in uh, some of the military documentaries. If you watch, like on uh, I don't know Nat Geo, Curiosity Stream, wherever you find them, uh, well, they'll have if it's produced uh, in the the UK, they'll have it spelled wrong. And then you read the comments and everyone's like, you can't spell, how dare you put that on the screen, spelled yeah, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that in some of the reviews. All right, so Ashley, how far do you think you can stray from established norms uh, and still re meet reader expectations? Well, again, another great question. I think it comes down to setting. Um, both of my series are written in the near future, so I don't really stray from the current norms. So my American... Gatewalker series uses American um, rank structures, uh, though I mix it up by having the setting as a unified combatant command. So I've got, you know, Air Force, Navy, Marines, etc., soldiers uh, there, which allows for a little bit of dialogue interactions because, you know, get my civilian characters, well, why is this character called this? Why is this character called that? And I can have a little gloss where the... the the Marine says, well, you know, he's an Air Force and he's Army and I'm Marine and you're going to call me this because that's the way it is in the Marines. But I'm the same rank as that person there. You call something different. So, you know, it, it can be a useful thing. Um, when I was doing the Russian series, I actually had to go away and research all the Russian ranks. And uh, I put them in a glossary in, 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 in the books uh, because, you know, they, they don't have. I mean, they have their equivalents, but they don't call them privates. It's called Radoiva and Efrito and Mlitsche Sargent, you know, for their names, which I have all in the books. Um, 
So I'd argue that if you're going to do a far future setting, um, then you, you really need to make your ranks a part of the world building. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of history that we can call back on. We can go back to the Greeks. We can go back earlier than that to Chinese history even. And you can farm that and, 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 uh, or mine it for interesting uh, interesting examples. I was thinking of one. Sorry, I got distracted. Michael Z. Williamson wrote a book a long time to now, uh, which is a military story set in the past of future time travel. And uh, he addresses that very same thing where the Americans are talking to some Romans they meet. And and the, the, the squaddies are saying, basically, well, you know, call the lieutenant. He should be a, a centurion. And, and one of the guys saying, no, no, because a centurion is not an officer. He needs to be called a legate. Uh, and that's what they do. So I think, yeah, yeah, that's the way you go with it. OK, I've read that book, even have a review for it on my website. Um, so that was that was interesting. I understand he's even going to write a part two. So. This is a reader-submitted question that they wanted us to discuss, um, but we see some military science fiction stories include a romantic element. Um, so do you think that you can have a romantic element and it still fit with reader expectations for military science fiction, or does that make it uh, transition into being a sci-fi romance novel? Uh, and Ashley, you're first this time, but not just because you're a girl, okay. I promise. It's just, well, I'm rotating through. As, as the token <laughs> girl, um, I'd say only with the lightest of touches as part of the character development. So as Tim will tell you, because he's read my books, there's some romance uh, between a couple of the characters, but it's not front and center. It's just, oh, they, they hang out together. Um, one of the biggest disappointments that I've read recently was a, a series by, dare I say it, Rachel Bark, who did a paradox uh, porn uh, trilogy, uh, really interesting power armor in space, which gets the merchant background as a mercenary. And, and it was, I loved all that bit of it, but the romance was so front and center that uh, uh, she sacrificed um the military aspects of the novel or the paramilitary aspects of the novel with the romance. So, yeah, that didn't work so much for me. Good story, but didn't work for me. Okay, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I think you asked, does it uh, fit in with reader expectations? And I think the answer to that is depends on the reader and depends upon what that reader wants at the time. Um, so, I mean, I've... I've read uh, military SF with with romance, and as long as it doesn't break the military aspect, which we've said several times, it's important. It's authentic. Uh, then, yeah, I, I, I quite like that personally. Not always, but from time to time, it's very difficult to write though, because, uh, well, I mean, uh, as with the Gatewalker series, I mean, the characters that that, that actually wrote there, well, they're kind of busy uh, most of the novel. They don't really have time to sort of sit down and. And, and, and <laughs> mooch at each other and, and i think that's that's a problem i've i've found writing as well i i've i've intended to put in uh romantic threads in a number of books and then there's been no no way to put that in easily uh which i guess is is quite realistic but it's all happening off camera or or elsewhere uh, other people um 
love it. I must admit, but I mean, one of the one of my first um, uh, my first book I wrote for the Four Horsemen universe, for example, uh, I got a, a one star review on Amazon because uh, it had broken the whole attitude of the Four Horsemen series by having character development, and I thought that was a betrayal. Um, <laughs> so you know, other people obviously will say, "Well, that's that's brilliant because that's we like it." It's not the other books didn't have character development. I don't know why they they said that, but you know, it, it just goes to show you can't do anything um with the expectation you're going to please every reader because they all come with a different set of expectations and, and prejudices okay and right on romance and military side there are as many answers to this as there are readers uh, who will potentially read your books uh, and each one has a different tolerance for it um i mean personally i, I deal with it with a very light touch however i do um, acknowledge that um, well what, what is the reasons why we why we fight often it's for family friends and loved ones um, if we pass that down into the loved ones that inevitably means that there's romance involved there somewhere um, and also you're going to balance that against the fact that generally your uh, your um, uh, any military is going to be primarily staffed with relatively young people um, you know, I think in in, a, in lots of media, sort of the uh, the average age of um, of, of your uh, of your soldier, squaddy, sailor, or whatnot seems to be magnified by by <laughs> doubles the age, isn't it? Mostly the sort of eighteen to twenty five year olds or thereabouts who inevitably <laughs> are going to be uh, are going to be interested in one another if it's if it's a mixed mixed uh, well, I suppose not, not even if it's a mixed um, gender crew, but um, you know, um, personally, I deal with it with a light touch. However, I do sort of acknowledge it on occasion. Um, and again, one of the things you've, you've got to tread warily of is that uh, different readers and reader groups have different tolerances to moral values. So, um, for example, there's, there's certainly when I was in the um, um, serving in the reserves and uh, in my earlier days as a um, as a police officer. Uh, shall we say, sports sex wasn't uncommon. Um, but, you know, that might not fit in with the moral values of of someone who, who believes that, um, you know, relationships should be, uh, you know, strictly within a, um, a family background. So you've got to kind of tread warily with it. And the one thing I've learned is, uh, it, you know, probably, probably sort of give a nod to it. It's an important part of the human condition. But um, uh, but generally, the readers, I don't think, want a, a military Fiction, stroke science fiction, don't want to duck down into into the nitty gritty, shall we say? Okay, and uh, that's also especially important if you have uh, family members as your first line readers. I had a scene of such in my Demons of Corellia story in, in Tim's universe, and my mother was reading it, and she sent it back with a note that was politely saying, I don't know what you and your wife are doing, but you need to practice and do it better, because this sucks. <laughs> and uh, I have never included another one of those scenes <laughs> yeah. again. Well, when, when, so, when, I, I definitely... I definitely when your parents understand. say, you need to find <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you, know, <you've>, uh, <laughs> you know you've done something right or wrong. <laughs> All right. So speaking of uh, the combat, which we've talked about before, um, how do you balance the uh, reader expectations for weapons in science fiction uh, with the what we call the rule of cool? And today, uh, Tim, you're first. Well, it's just as, as we've said, the last question, really different readers look for different things. Um, and 
I mean, I write novels in a in the mech series. These are Caspers, Canva Assault, Assault System Personal. Uh, I don't really believe in mechs, but that doesn't matter because uh, the characters do, and it's authentic, and it all makes sense within the uh, context. Uh, and as long as, as long as it's consistent and as long as it feels authentic, I think a lot of people will be happy to run with that. And of course, there are mechs on the covers, and that's where cover art becomes very important because if you think, oh, I don't like mechs, that's a silly idea, you won't buy the book, which is absolutely fine because there are plenty of people who, who love to do exactly that. So, yeah, it, it, you can play it in different ways. But certainly, if if something is really pretty cool in the rule of cool, it, it gives you uh, a lot of uh, excuses. You, you, can, you can excuse a lot of that if something's really cool. All right, Ralph. Um, how I think if we have realistic space combats, it would be first shot, first kill from beyond visual range. Um, you, you know, you'll be um, you'll be firing at a dot on a radar, uh, and the people on the receiving end, the first they'll know about it is when they're dissipating atoms. Um, <laughs> spaceships are probably going to be quite delicate things, even if they are by uh, their own sort of token sort of heavily armored warships or whatever it's still going to be sort of you know over very quickly which probably doesn't make for sort of that dramatic scenes although albeit david waver does it very well in uh, in the honor harrington series so it can be done um if we go to the other side you've got the, the with the rule of cool side of things um you know there's no doubt that things like uh, you know your star wars back well your, your rogue one and before battles rather than new series or spectacular visual fests. Um, and you can certainly do a, uh, you know, an excellent sort of literary versions of those as well. Um, so in the Great War, for example, um, there's lots of kind of dog fights between fighters with sort of like some, some nods towards like real physics, you know, they have to sort of decelerate into battle and rather than accelerate into battle often and things like that. Uh, but, um, you know, it's mostly setups to try and create those kind of swirling dogfights of, of, of World War Two, which I don't believe for an instant would be anything like what realistic military or space military conflict would be like. Um, then on the other side, I've got Erebus, uh, where I have a number of um, what, what I would deem to be sort of relatively realistic sort of space battles as well and i worked hard to still make them dramatic and uh, whatnot as as the sort of tussling and using uh, skills and um uh, knowledge experience and tactics to to try and get the first first strike on their opponent rather than it being about the battle itself um and so yeah it's 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 an interesting one. Both can work. Both can work. But again, it all comes back to the consistent framework of what, what you're writing in. Okay. And uh, Ashley? Gosh. Well, Ralph and Tim have kind of nailed it. But what I would say is that you can make any weapon fighting story boring. It's very easy to make a combat sequence boring um, by not um, choosing your timing and pacing and stuff. Um, grips the reader so for me i'm kind of thinking it's all about the setting and your assumptions about your setting so 
I write fairly near future, 60, no more than 60 years out. So all the weapons that I'm going to be featuring are, are, are not too outrageous because um, they have to be plausible within the setting. Though, of course, when my characters meet aliens who have technology that's, you know, Clark tech, then I can I can have a bit of fun with that. And But I don't explain much about it. I just explain the effects. Um, if I were to do a far future setting, and I do have a plan to do a, a sort of Gundam space opera type of sto- story at some point, then I would want to be using exotic energy weapons and thinking about the second order effects. Like, like Ralph said, you know, the spaceships are going to be hundreds of thousands of miles away at first contact and probably won't close any closer than 10, 10, 20,000 miles, you know, 30,000 kilometers. I mean, they are just dots at that point. So you, you've got to think about how you're going to make uh, this compelling. How do you raise the tension when, uh, you know, there's a light delay between your spaceship that's in seconds, you know, do you, you, because it's so far away. So it's a difficult thing. But, um, yeah, rule of cool, you know, Farscape, I thought I had the best rule of cool when uh, John Crichton uh, magicked up a, a wormhole and said, you don't want me to do this, but you're forcing me to do this. Pull the wormhole up and everything starts falling into the wormhole. So it can be done. Yeah, definitely. All right. That's a, that's a lot of detail to throw into a scene. Speaking of details, what level of detail do you need for it to uh, please readers in military science fiction? Do we need to get to the point where we have technical specs for all the spaceships? And if you can do that, by the way, Elon Musk wants you to call him uh, in weapon systems, or can you just wave your hand and call it a blaster and move on? Ralph? Um, both uh, are, are perfectly, perfectly valid. Um one only has to look at the, um, um, uh, you know, the amount of uh, source books for various um, various role playing games, uh, and uh, you know, even TV series and other books uh, and other stories. So, you know, the, uh, the, you know, like the Enterprise technical manual, for example. You know, it's, it, and uh, to know that there's definitely an audience for that. But then you swing it to the other side of the. Um, uh, of the spectrum uh, and um, you've got like say um, the Galaxy's Edge series where a blaster is just a blaster and, uh, uh, and Nicole and Jason Arnspotch almost aggressively dismiss anyone who wants um, who, who wants anyone to sort of duck down into any detail of that because they don't want that to eclipse um, other aspects of the story so you can cater towards both. I'll probably, it depends what story I'm writing. So for the Great War, um, you know, I define the tactics. I define roughly what, what the capabilities are of these, um, of the ships. And, you know, it's basically there to try and simulate the kind of events and, um, and battles of, um, of World War Two. So I've kind of, kind of forcing the technology into those kind of, into those situations um, but then on the other side, on 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 Erebus, I go and the Sleeping Gods, I go into an immense amount of detail, um, and the, the, there's readers who appreciate both ends of that. Um, 
that I think naturally I'll probably fall about sort of 75% towards the detail side of things. I like to know what I'm dealing with. I like to explain to the readers and, uh, um, you know, one of my big challenges is often um, passing back on exposition once I've read it, once I've written a story to then sort of like turn it from a technical manual into uh, into a compelling uh, reading experience. Okay. Well, Ashley? This is a really fine line to ride. So in terms of technical specs, I would only go into that if I was writing a set of rules for a game, which I have done in the past. Um, I wrote a set of rules called Omri War Machine. Don't bother looking for it. It's been long out of print. It's about nearly 30 years ago. Um, so, I, but I have to kind of own up and admit that I'm guilty of putting glossaries of technical details in the back of my books. Um, and I have little jokes. And if you read the glossary and you're, you're a bit of a military, military buff, um, you'll get references to technical manuals, uh, you know, uh, a definition of a piece of equipment that says then refer to this technical manual, just because, again, that's the way I roll. Um, but my characters, uh, my characters just treat the stuff as stuff. It's like it's a it's a, a suit. It's a gun. It's it's a rocket pack that they they kind of do geek a little bit about uh, rotary cannons. I have a, a couple of sergeants uh, in one scene in the first novel going, yeah, G-cows are great because, you know, just does the biz. Um, so they'll, they'll call the stuff by its proper name or nomenclature, but they're not going to wax lyrical on the perceived advantages of a forty-five caliber over a 9mm, for instance, because it's just a pistol. And if you want to bring down the pain, you need more than just a pistol. You're talking about artillery, aren't you? There you go. All right, Tim. I remember that scene actually Ashley's just talked about, and it's an excellent way of just slipping it in. I think that's an important thing. And talking about the right loadout for the for the mission that's about to come. Um and I think that's there's certainly a lot of people who, who really like the, the technical detail, but they um if you're gonna go down that, that route, it's the way to uh, feed the detail and to keep the consistency without overloading an exposition in ways that seem inauthentic. Uh, for the readers who aren't particularly uh, interested, and nobody really wants to. Well, I mean, some people are very happy for the the narrative to stop, and then there'll be five paragraphs detailing the precise details of the technical specs. Um, but there are others who who aren't. Um, but certainly, one of the things in terms of uh, of fans, fans seem to be particularly interested in precise details of all weapons specs and uh, tos and e's and so on. Um, so we may get a slightly um, distorted view because the people who are really into that are more likely to be really into the fan clubs on facebook and that that kind of thing but i think it's 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 useful if you have the detail in your head all worked out and you're consistent i think it's that people talk about the iceberg idea of your world building if you've figured it all out uh then it's it's by some magical process it's it's kind of detectable from the bits that you you portray to the reader that the the fundamental underpinnings are there, even if you're not actually uh, giving the details. All right, that sounded intelligent. So I'm going to smile and nod and pretend like I could wear my glasses. Uh, so speaking. That's <laughs> So speaking of details, 
Uh, how do you handle the details of daily life for the average soldier? So soldiers, so we're talking your MREs, late pay, cheating wives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, Ashley. rule number one, isn't it? Don't be boring. Um, if you're going to include this stuff, uh, it must be something to be overcome or to develop a character or a solution to a problem. So, um, you know, I have, I have, I think I have scenes um, where characters go. I do know I have a scene where a character is taking a shower. You know, so yeah, these things are there, but um, just don't be boring. Basically, um, it has to be relevant to either the setting the character, or the problem. All right, you heard it here first. The rule of science fiction, don't be boring. All right, Tim. Yeah, I like to, to, to feed in bits and pieces that aren't necessarily essential, but give a little bit of color, make it a little bit um, authentic. So things such as you know, letters from home or um, misunderstandings, things going amiss, uh, weapons jamming, well, that obviously could be quite dramatic um, the food tastes terrible, all these sorts of things. Just a little bit thrown in there. It, it makes it feel a little bit more uh, lived in, I guess, than if everything always works first time and the only thing everybody ever thinks about is the next battle. All right. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with um, with Ashley and uh, Tim on there. It, it, um, uh, firstly, Ashley's... Uh, you know, rule of don't be don't be boring, or the Chuck Manley rule, as we call it. Um, the and uh, as as Tim has said, the um, um, you know making the the universe feel lived in and authentic. And uh, again, one of the things that um, military science fiction often does is, is and it, there tends to be a lot of military veterans who, who read it, read that kind of thing, they, and people who want to join the military and. Uh, you know, they're, they're, for the people who want to join the military, they tend to be quite interested in that. And for the uh, for the um, people who uh, who have served, it, it tends to engender sort of either an affectionate or not so affectionate eye roll, uh, you know, about the MREs and, and whatnot. Although, uh, um, so yeah, <laughs> I, I like putting in those details as long as they don't um, uh, overwhelm the uh, overwhelm the story. Generally, you know, I keep, I keep them sort of relatively small, uh, but I do think they help build character and uh, uh, or help build characters, you know, how your characters react to these kind of things as well. There's some people who stoically eat whatever's put in front of them, for example. There's other ones who, <laughs> you know, who want, uh, who want the finest cuisine and, uh, and whatnot. And so it's, it can be used as important character development and, uh, and to help the universe feel authentic. Okay, now that we've covered the broad strokes, what do you think makes good, a bad, or great military science fiction? Um, so we went with Tim first. So Ralph, um, as the the authentic framework for me is, is what what does it, um, along with great characters uh, who who react, you know, in ways that um, one would one would expect in those situations as well, uh, and. I mean, one of the things we haven't touched on really is is characters, um, and it, it, they are so important to making um, making the, the the story feel um, real. So it's how the whatever the situation, whether it's sort of a contemporary science fiction using contemporary weapons against the alien blog who are 
you know, coming down or, or whether it's something in the far future. Um, it's how the characters deal with the uh, situation, keeping because your characters, your window into that story. Um, personally, I like uh, I like the, the the camera quite close on the shoulder, so to speak. Um, but then also I like it to pan out as well on occasion and show the bigger the bigger picture, perhaps. Um, so so yeah, great characters is is is, is great memorable characters is is as part of it. Um, bad science, bad military science fiction. Um, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit OCD, and it's people who don't really do their homework on, on the basics uh, that, that that kind of grates me a little bit. Um, so, you know, they haven't got sort of rank structures down, or a consistent rank structure down, or, or, you know, people are doing strange or inconsistent things. Um, yeah, you can always have your wildcard character, but they should still be kind of operating within a, a wider framework and... So yeah, lack of homework is a is a is a big 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 thing for me. Well, All right, uh, I'm going to have to go with what Ralph said. I mean, it's got to be characters that the reader can relate to, uh, with real problems that threaten the character, without causing the reader to suspend disbelief. So you know, um, if one of your characters is using Tabasco sauce to fend off the Rigelian um, uh, leeches. Uh, you better have a good reason why tobacco sauce does that, because uh, other people go, "You what? Tobacco sauce? It's really great. I love tobacco sauce." So you don't want to be um, suspending their disbelief. Um, though on the other hand, I, I, I'm reminded of Skippy's rules of things he's no longer allowed to do, which is a, a meme that uh, hopefully you guys have come across on the web, and it it, it that. I'm told that uh, all these things that are on this list um, are based on real things that real doofuses, wingnuts, whatever you want to call them, have done, uh, which have caused, you know, signs to be put on doors to bathrooms that says no horses allowed. So, you know, <laughs> um but again, I suppose uh, I would say light seasoning uh, for this kind of stuff because uh, you, you throw too much in, you know, people are going to say, what kind of military is this? You know, um, so, yeah, uh, do your homework. I mean, I'm not military, uh, but I heard some very complimentary things said to me about my about the amount of research I did for my military books. Uh, and yeah, do your research. That's All it. Right, Tim. All right, Tim. How do you follow that? Well, I mean, the readers, uh, they live your story through your characters. So it's no different from, from other uh, forms of fiction. You need to have good characters you can relate to and give them good problems. I mean, for me personally, I like to have uh, get the sense of interdependency between people uh, who are in a, in a, in a shared um, environment or usually a um, you know, the same unit uh, who will, um, because it's it's a situation that, that perhaps people aren't normally involved with. It's 
you, you have to make yourself vulnerable and you have to rely upon other people explicitly. That's quite an interesting thing for me. I want intensity as well, at least in some parts uh, of the story. The thing that for me makes bad science fiction is is lazy lazy Hollywood cliches, basically, that, that are inauthentic. And I think I'm happy to make allowances for the visual medium, perhaps rather or more, and I wouldn't do it with you know, where the stormtroopers always miss, and the Daleks always miss, um, you know, that's all right under Tilly. You don't take it seriously anyway, but I wouldn't, that's inauthentic and it wouldn't work for me uh, in the form of a novel. Tilly, okay. Another one of those British words for you. I hope you're taking notes, dear listener. So we have another fan-submitted question. So they wanted to know uh what the panel was thought of the use of acronyms in military science fiction and where the line is between uh, just enough and too much and not enough. So I love this them, time. but I do admit that when I'm reading a, a new book, if I get too many TLAs uh, in the text, I kind of go, do what? Uh, what's that mean? And I have to scan back. So I think there's an, an element of craft um, that has to be used if you're going to use acronyms and TLAs. Three-letter uh, three-letter acronyms is what TLAs is. The, the military love them. Um, so what I do is, uh, for a start, I put a glossary in the back of the book so that people can just flick through and go, oh, yeah, what's that? Uh, but when I introduce an acronym, I always add a little gloss the first time I use it. And if it's a rare term that only appears once or twice within the story, then I'll, then I'll remind the reader with a sh- shorter gloss. A gloss is a, just a, a piece of craft business where you go, oh, map, uh, magnetic anomaly project for short, you know, like that. I think that's kind of useful because um, there's nothing worse than throwing the reader out because they go, what does that, what does that, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay, Tim. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm not a massive fan. I, I do read some military SF. I think I get a little bit overloaded, but I do certainly put them in. Um, and I think they're, uh, t- to me, um, it's a bit like a, a secret code that you share between yourself and the reader. It's a, it helps to make it special to them. Uh, so it's not just acronyms, but special terms that are unique to your to your setting i i do like to put them in but i'm i'm careful not to overload too much all right well, it's uh, such a fine line and again uh, different readers um like different levels but um you know in terms of the um firm answer i mean radio speak um whether in the military the police um or, or whatnot is I would suggest virtually incomprehensible to um, uh, to the average layman, uh, as is as would like a briefing be, uh, or or, um, or or even you know sort of the casual conversation that you you find where uh, um, where individuals naturalise that kind of speak into their into their into their own vocabulary, and people just wouldn't understand a lot of it unless you've you've served in that unit and and it can be as specific as down to um down to a particular unit so uh, so you, you you were army weren't you jr um and you probably you probably wouldn't know what the hell a, an air force 
pilot was on about if he was uh, if he's in um, if he was in radio contact with with with, with someone else. Uh, and so it's not just within, uh, you know, the difference between civilian and uh, military is the the difference between individual units. Um, I mean, it, it is a really massively fine line in using them. I quite like using them. One of the ways I do use them sometimes, um, and not just acronyms, but um, uh, but kind of military speak overall, is um, to add a sort of flavour of authenticity. So, you know, similar to sort of how techno babble is sometimes used in um, in harder science fiction. Yeah, the reader reads it. They don't understand what the hell it's on about, but they, they, they trust that the characters do know what they're on about uh, or what each other's on about. Um, so that, that's one way it can be used. Um, uh, so, for example, I've got a scene where um, we've got um, some uh, Navy or in my um, in the Great War, I've got a scene where uh, some Navy um, uh, personnel are having a card game with uh, some Marines and um, the, the Marines are talking in, in sort of virtually one language and the Navy taking talking in another. Uh, and there is some obvious crossover there because they work together. But, you know, they're still like, what? yeah, do you mind repeating that kind of thing? That's, that's one of the ways I, I kind of use it in sort of like casual conversation. Other ways I use it, as I say, is when they're... Like, for example, I've got a scene where uh, a pilot is launching off a carrier. Um, they're doing the, the radio checks and uh, pre-flights and whatnot, and they're just rattling through it really quickly. Um, and it's not there really to be understood uh, by the reader. What it's there for is to demonstrate that this is a, is a, uh, is a competent character who knows what they're on about. And then, bang, they're, they're away. But, you know, you can't have pages and pages of that. It has to be sort of like a like kind of a... a a dive in and then sort of pull back out and then ready to go so it's such a fine line but i think it can be a really powerful tool to add authenticity but just not pages and pages of it because i, I wouldn't even know what say an american cop is talking about you know if they were speaking in radio speak and i'm, a, I'm you know i'm the british cop so um so it's got to be carefully done um but it, it can be powerful okay um... All right, so I did a five-second pause, and we'll do one after you guys answer. Do you have time for two more questions, or do to wrap it up? I'm good. No, good. good for two, yeah. Good for as many as you want. All right, then uh, we're going <laughs> to pause for Well, we went through most of them, so <laughs> give me just a second. All right, so now let's look at the genre writ large. Do you feel like we're in a boom period for military science fiction or a bubble that's about to pop? I do know that after a certain Mr. Chris Fox wrote a book about writing to market and the how everybody can make gangbusters of cash in the military science fiction field, we did briefly see a, a influx of new authors. Uh, do you feel like that's going kind of uh, trend is going to continue or will the genre uh, change? How, how do you think that's going to go, Ralph? Um, the, the, there's no doubt it's a popular genre um, and um, there's an expanding readership but there's also a massively expanding authorship as well um, and that can make it very difficult for um, new authors to um, sort of rise into prominence um, I don't think it's about to pop. I think it's going to it's going to continue expanding. Um, I just think there's going to be a lot more uh, authors who are providing material uh, as well. It's okay, a good yeah. question. Um, I'm not sure I can answer it. 
what I would say is that if it does pop, it will pop in the trad pub, trad pub uh, arena, not in the independent arena. But with the caveat that, again, because caveats are my thing, um, the people who pursue what's hot in a genre are generally... Well, it's not their passion. They're just pursuing what's hot. And I think if you have a passion for a genre, and I have a passion for military settings, then I can build a reader base. And as long as I'm not boring and I have good characters, people will buy my books. That's what I think. Okay. Uh, Tim? Well, certainly there's a there's been a massive boom that is coincided with the, the rise of the Kindle. Uh, I think military science fiction itself is slightly come off its peak, but it's plateaued much higher than it was uh, 10 years ago. But I think what's happening is authors who sort of started perhaps military science fiction are pushing into adjacent areas of space opera, space fantasy, uh, science fiction romance even. Um, so the people are there, they're just spreading out. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a good thing. I think at one point, actually, it, it got a little bit uh, as if it was writing the same book. Um, in fact, specifically, Art Royal um, by Christopher Nuttall. But then I think just as I got worried it was going to just get caught up in the same same book every time, I think everybody sort of have now spread out and I've, I've learned their craft perhaps a bit more. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely here to stay uh, and it's still a very, very healthy genre. Okay, and speaking of the genre, how do you think that military science fiction of today is different than it was in, say, the 80s or 90s? And those differences, or lack thereof them, do they make it more exciting? Is it disappointing to you as the, uh, the genre has evolved? Um, Ralph? Um, it's interesting, because I think you've got to take the overwhelming cultures of the time. So in the 80s, for sure, and uh, very early 90s, you had, um, uh, you know, you had uh, NATO in the West versus the East. So you tend to have uh, sort of stories which took kind of two large empires grinding against each other. Um, in the 90s, I think you tended to find a lot of fallen empire stuff uh, as as the antagonists or even protagonists on occasion. Um, and, and now, obviously, post September the 11th, um, again, there's been a... Um, a bit of a culture shift to the kind of um, war fighting that we we have now, um, you know, sort of manhunts uh, and uh, kind of invasion levels and more insidious enemies. Um, so there, ha- there has been an evolution, and, and of course you find it I find it interesting and the, the product which comes out of it exciting. Um, and I think military science fiction again is a, is a really good window for exploring those conflicts and uh, and the mindsets of people involved in them. So I, I like the way that it the way that uh, military science fiction can stay on point in exploring current affairs through through that lens. So yes, in a simple one word answer, yes, I find it exciting. Okay. So what about you, Ashley? Repeat the question. I've kind of got lost track. Um, it's about changes in the 80s. Yeah, the changes to the genre over the years. And do you approve or disapprove? Do you like them, hate them? Well, 
Your thoughts? I don't know how old my two fellow uh, but I, uh, speakers are today, but I'm a bit older than perhaps most people. Um, so I can I can remember back in the 60s and 70s, and there's definitely a change, uh, the wind of change, as Ralph would say, um, perhaps if he thought of that to say. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I could... Yeah, go, I'll go with that. It sounds far more eloquent than me. So uh, <laughs> thank you for ascribing that to me. <laughs> so, you know, going back to the 60s, which is a bit earlier, uh, I mean, you'd have things, I'm going to call it general whoop-ass, you know, if it was a big picture story or, or private striving to succeed if it was a kind of down and dirty in the trenches story. And obviously, uh, there's always been a continuum between, you know, the, the big story with the generals and the, uh, the, the small stories with the privates. And yeah, there's been a big culture change. So what was popular back then, say Sven Hassel and his uh, Legion of the Dam series or, or Leo Kessler's um, SS stories that he wrote, which are not science fiction, but the they kind of embody the changes in culture. So, yeah, in the 70s, very much about uh, the Cold War, the big picture in terms of, you know, America versus the Ruskies. Now it's more about the small wars. I love it all. I, and I think there's um, room to, for an author to, to write stories. Very fertile. Um, you don't have to repeat um, the Battle for Rourke's Drift or even the Battle of Britain because there's been so many interesting conflicts around the world that can serve as inspiration for future what-if stories. You know, um, what if all our fighting is going to be in urban uh, environments like London, New York, wherever? You know, will that change what we need? Well, undoubtedly it will. Um, tanks are not very good uh, within a built-up area. So we might see mecha, you know, combat armor suits that people, you know, wear to protect them, to, to make them mini tanks to, to go around the battlefields and survive uh, a very stressful environment. Or we might just see automation with uh, artificial intelligence and uh, remote driven uh, weapons. Though there are problems with that, because as soon as you come up against a peer equivalent, because most of the battles in the last 20, 30 years have been uh, a disparity between one side and the other, technologically speaking, uh, whereas World War II was against a, a peer combatant. So if we go back to peer combatants, yeah, it's going to change change the type of war stories that people will write that's it okay Tim. well i'm going to take a slightly uh, different perspective here uh, and that's of the publishing industry itself so i mean i i started to come involved with uh the british publishing side of things in the early 2000s uh, and then very closely tracked from 2011 what was going on in the independent publishing over on the board of kindle uh and it's it's things have moved very, very, very rapidly in just a few years at sort of internet speed. And one of the things I think is crucial for military science fiction is that outside of one or two places, perhaps Bane books, I don't think sci uh, military science fiction was treated with a great deal of respect or was greatly understood 
by the publishers who actually published them. And it didn't mean that people weren't uh, writing great science fiction, so people such as uh, Ian Douglas uh, over at Harper Voyager, but I don't think the people who published him really understood what he was doing. He just seemed to sell books, and he's our token military science fiction person. Um, and I think that's that's a big difference. The people who are writing uh, science fiction now and very successfully as professionals have got a much wider variety of backgrounds, including a lot more people now uh, with military background. We've said uh, authenticity is, is an important thing, and I think there's a lot more of that around for those who are looking for it than perhaps there was just a, a few short years ago. So that's my my change. Okay. Well, that was, was all of the questions I had prepared. Uh, is there anything you think we should have talked about before, before I wrap this up? Um, Tim? No, I think we've covered it really well. Absolutely. Uh, we've um, we've explored lots, and it's been an honour to be uh, involved in this panel. All right, Ashley, did, was there anything we missed? You got to I talk got about to talk your about lovely, lovely mechas. I mean, one thing we could say is uh, iconic books. Okay. Well, that was the last okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. See, she's a genius, people. All right, so uh, we'll ask you, since you you were just talking and you mentioned it, uh, what do you believe are iconic books in the military sci-fi well, genre? Ash? Again, being a boring old uh, grognard um, when it comes to military science fiction and science fiction in general, um, I've got a bunch of people that I, I think people the readers are not reading nowadays. So uh, Ian Douglas, uh, though actually people are reading him, Bill Keith is his real name, the Heritage Trilogy, and in fact, all his Marine books are really, really good because uh, he used to be a Marine corpsman himself. So, you know, authenticity is just, you know, in there. Um, but there's some other good books like uh, Passage at Arms by Glenn Cook, which is a space, space combat, which is just awesome. Uh, we all died at Breakaway Station, where the title gives away the ending, but it's a great read, and you know, if you, if you haven't read it, read it. Um, the Orphanage series by Robert Butner, again, a former military person, and we've already mentioned Mark Cluse, but uh, yeah, front lines, brilliant. Yeah, Marco does okay. Yeah, for, uh, for well, a, no, he does okay. He, he's 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 former military, isn't he? I, I, I believe. Yeah, he was in the uh, German army before he immigrated to the states. I, um, all right. So what about you, Tim? Is there any iconic books you believe everybody should read? Uh, yeah, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, that I think Ralph mentioned earlier. Uh, Crow, the first of the Union series by Philip Richards, which is uh, a very, very tight, um, tightly written, as in uh, the people fighting don't really know what's going on in, in terms of the big battle, uh, which is quite exhausting to read, but very rewarding. Uh, Legionnaire, uh, first Galaxy's Edge book. Uh, Nicole and Jason Ansbach, of course, uh, and The VCs, which was uh, a military science fiction series that I read in 2000 AD comic back in uh, 79 to 80, which is collected in graphic novel form. So The VCs, 2000 AD, read it. Yeah, great book. Yeah. Okay. Ralph? Um, I think people have mentioned uh, um, my natural picks. Uh, I'd say Tim C. Taylor, the, um, Ashley Pollard, Ashley L. Pollard. Uh, it, someone wouldn't go 
wouldn't go wrong in uh, in uh, in going for their oh, books. Um, Marco Cluse is is probably my number one. I can't recommend him highly enough. Um, I, I, I love those books um, bigly. Um, what else? Um, it's a word. It's a, it's a word. Um, I've I've got a soft spot for Stephen Moss's uh, Fear trilogy as well. If um, people want to see a kind of um, development of uh, or a hum- or an alien invasion from humans having to deal with it today to um, defeating a huge armada uh, of alien craft, but in a very very realistic way, um, that that feels really really that, that's an excellent book. If people want want something with a bit of um, a bit of uh, a British flavour to it, um, considering the panel. Um, there is um, Nick Pope's uh, Operation Thunderchild, I think it's called. The Operation Lightning Strike is the first one, Operation Thunderchild is the second. Um, they're getting on a bit now, but um, again, they're really excellent alien invasion stories, but in a very hyper-realistic uh, setting. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that, and uh, what's more, that that chap was um, he was he was um, a senior civil servant in the British government who, uh, who apparently had some responsibility for investigating UFOs in uh, in in the early day in the eighties and nineties. Um, who else? I think I think every everyone's pretty much been mentioned. Um, uh, Josh Hayes. Um, does uh, does an excellent book, um, uh, Echoes of Valor, um, a kind of Black Hawk Down in Space sort of story, which has an interesting take on on these things. Um, it's sort of a, a police investigation, but during a mission that's gone wrong. Um, uh, yeah, there's there's so many out there, um, and so many excellent ones as well. That's a good problem to have. All right. So as we bring this to a close and uh, we appreciate you, dear listeners, sticking with us for the entire two hours. Ralph, how can listeners find you? Um, well, obviously, Amazon is uh, Amazon and Audible are uh, two uh, excellent places. Uh, just uh, simply type in my name and uh, uh, and my books will come out as well as uh, a number of anthologies that I've um, written in. Um I've got a, a website again, um, fairly, fairly sort of simplistic landing page, but one can uh, get on um, um, uh, one can sort of get on my mailing list through there. So ralphkern.com. Um, what else is there? I'm um, a, a semi-frequent contributor to Keystroke Medium, um, which I'd suggest that quite a few people know about in the military science fiction fandom circles. Um, and uh, finally, I've got a Facebook page as well. Um, just type in my name and it'll come up. Um, uh, one of the sort of side notes is I have an excellent um, artist who works with me, uh, Jamie Glover, who um, has realised a lot of the uh, the um, uh, equipment, mechs, uh, spaceships and whatnot in uh, the Great War series. And uh, we showcase them on there. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's everything. Jamie Glover does amazing art. I've, I've used him before as well. All right, well, Ashley, how I can have find uh, you? Amazon uh, author page, both in the UK and the US. Uh, just type my name, Ashley R. Pollard, into it, and you should find that. Um, Facebook, again, type my name in. You should come up with my author page. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley R. Pollard. You're getting a theme here. And uh, I have uh, <laughs> a website, though it's, it, it's just a blog spot. Again, Ashley R. Pollard. And you can find me on Goodreads, too. Um, so just search my name. You know my name? There you go. Outstanding. And Tim, how can listeners find you? Uh, check out humanlegion.com, uh, where not only can you look at uh, various pretty pictures, uh, but you can join the Legion uh, and receive lots of exclusive stories through all my series, including The Four Horsemen. Outstanding. And you can find us on our website at www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter is at sfs underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Facebook group is facebook.com backslash groups backslash sfshenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Seska Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.